like it when life makes sense, right? A number of you started school again this week. Start you out with something easy. One plus one equals two. Good. Two plus two equals? We like it when life makes sense, right? When the numbers add up and they all make sense, those are nice, right? As we get a little older, perhaps we, we know of a person, we know their gifts, and it just seems as though they end up in a career that perfectly matches the gifts, their likes, their attitude, right? And we look and we'd say to that, that makes sense. It makes sense why this person ended up in this field. We like it when life makes sense. At the same time, we recognize that life doesn't always make sense, right? We might look and say, and think of a person and say, well, she was, she was such a good kid, and she comes from such a good family. How did she get addicted to heroin? Right? Or we might look at someone and say, he was, uh, he's a hardworking man, right? And they just celebrated their 25th anniversary. How could he just leave his family like that? It doesn't make any sense. Right? There are, are any number of come up in life. People-related, relationships, health. Right? That we look at and we go, it, that doesn't make any sense at all. Perhaps when we're young, we have those idealized pictures that life is always going to make sense. Right, that we're just a scientific breakthrough or a Google search away from all the answers from, from life making sense. And yet, the older we get, the more experienced we become, the more we realize how life just at times refuses to make any sort of sense. I mean, really, what sense is there in Hitler and his concentration camps? I mean, what sort of sense is there in the, the abuse of a child or in mass murders or any of the other things that we see and look at in life and go, this, this doesn't make any sense at all. I imagine it was some of the same thoughts the Israelites had some 600 years before Jesus was born. Jerusalem, their city, was surrounded by the Assyrians. And in a matter of just a, a few months, Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. Their temple was going to be completely laid to waste, stripped of, of everything that was important and special to them. Their homes were going to be torched. They were going to see their lives literally go up in smoke, and they were going to be deported. You can imagine the Israelites thinking to themselves, aren't we God's chosen people? This doesn't make any sense. War destruction, deportation, death. Seventy, eighty years later, as the Israelites are coming back, I can imagine them experiencing some of the same thoughts again. Right? As they, they walk into this once great city of Jerusalem and all they see are piles of rubble. They would see the, the walls torn down, the gates broken. They'd walk up to the Temple Mount where Solomon's temple once stood in all its splendor. And all they would see would be blocks of stone and a whole lot of weeds. 
Jerusalem, when they returned, was nothing but a ghost town that had been abandoned for 80 years. And they could look at all of that and say, this doesn't make any sense. As they view this scene, decide to roll up their sleeves and make a little bit of, make a little bit of their life make sense again. And so under the leadership of a man named Nehemiah, they, they begin and they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Right under the spiritual leadership of a prophet named Ezra, they, they, uh, they install a new altar on the Temple Mount. And they dig a little even deeper and they begin to lay foundations for a new temple. But you know how people are. Right? It was only a matter of time before they got a little bit distracted. They got distracted by life and suddenly were building, stopped being built. And so God comes to the Israelites through the prophet Haggai and he gives them this encouragement. This is what he says. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, God's house, remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much but have harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and on the, and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. What warning was God giving to the Israelites through Haggai? Their priorities had shifted, hadn't they? After they rebuilt the walls and they said, we need to rebuild the temple so we have a place to worship, it wasn't long after that their priorities shifted and, and shifted back to the home, right? And, and you can't really blame them a bit. You think of how often that happens in our own life, right? I look and say, I have, I'd like to do more, but I have these priorities or this thing, project I do at home, and then I'll do whatever. Right? Or, you know what, if... I'm not really in a good place right now to do this, but if I, if, I, if I shore up things at home and I get things at home the way they are, then I will be in a better position later to help. Except for the Israelites, the later never came. And now Israel's temple had had little starts and fits, but really hadn't progressed at all in 15 years. And Haggai comes to the Israelites and says, what message are you proclaiming with your priorities? Right, Haggai at all doesn't at all address the amount of money that or what the Israelites were doing as far as their offerings to God. He was more concerned about the Israelites' hearts. Right, and he says, what sermon are you 
with the priorities that you have set in your heart. And what was the message they were preaching? With their paneled homes, their nice homes, while the temple of their God still sat in ruins. They were preaching, what's first and most important is myself. And God comes second. And another way of, or another way of saying it is the theme we have for our, our message this morning. Giving to God doesn't make a bit of sense. And it doesn't, does it? I mean, you hear commercials on TV or on the internet that you have Charles Schwab telling you, you invest in yourself. You pay yourself first because then as you invest that money, you're going to have more money later. And you recognize if all of a sudden I'm giving, I'm going to have less for myself because I'm giving stuff away. Right? Our our sinful nature tells us the more I give away, the less I'm going to have for myself. And you think of what all my sinful nature wants, right? You think of the American dream now to have more than mom and dad did. Right? My, My sinful nature wants to stockpile and store up and even to the point of hoarding because then I have more for me. And Haggai's message to the Israelites rings a little true even in our day, doesn't it? That the same message that God had for the Israelites through the prophet Haggai is a warning that he gives to you and me to check our priorities to see where our hearts are at. Because our sinful nature is that giving to God doesn't make any sense. And because of that, I can give to God my leftovers. Right? What's left after everything else is taken care of. My sinful nature can even convince me that, you know what, if I I spend more money and things at home and kind of get this squared away, I'm going to have more to give to God later. But people are. The later rarely comes. So how could the Israelites whom Haggai is talking to, whom the Lord is the Lord is warning, begin to change their priorities? After all, think of what God is telling them, right? It's not as though the Israelites weren't working hard, right? He tells them, you've, you planted much but harvested little, right? You, you eat and drink but aren't satisfied. You're clothed but aren't warm. Money is placed into purses with holes and much turns out to be little. In other words, God tells them, because you gave little, you have little. For you and I, as as New Testament believers, think about what God is saying there. The God who was able to feed 5,000 plus people with a boy's picnic lunch is now saying, you have little because I've taken away the much you've had. The same God who was able to feed thousands of people on a few loaves of fish, a few loaves of fish, few loaves of bread and a few fish is the same God who can look at a stockpile and say that will never be enough for you because I can make it just 
never be enough. I can make it go away, right? And he talks to the Israelites how he, he can send droughts and all these things to make the much never be enough. Instead, if we want to talk about giving, we hear it from a God who gives. Right? It wasn't as though the, the God of the Israelites was telling his people to do something that he himself wasn't familiar with. Right? This was a God who continued to, to provide for them and, and take care of all their needs in spite of their rebellion against him. It's that same God who promises to take care of every one of our needs that calls us to to him. And he shows just how generous he is. He's a God who knows giving inside and out, right? A God who gave to us a, a Savior when we were least worthy of having a Savior. A God who gave up the golden streets of heaven for the manure of a barn in Bethlehem. Right? The God who came and walked all the way to the cross, taking every last one of our sins, who takes all of our misplaced priorities, who takes all those things that we would call sensible and says, those are sinful. He takes our greed. He takes it all to the cross and he pays for it so that you won't have to for those sins. Completely of himself for you. A, a God who paid his, used his own blood to pay for every last one of your sins. A God who knows what it's like to give generously to his people. Because that's what God does, isn't it? He gives everything for you and me. He assures us our sin is taken away, and if, if that were all that God gave us, we would have enough, wouldn't we? Because in that forgiveness of sins, we have eternal life. Our eternity is taken care of. We have a home in heaven. At that point, we're good. And on top of that, what does God do? He gives us more. He promises a home in heaven. He promises that he'll never leave us or forsake us. He promises that he'll continue to provide every last, for every last one of our needs. He promises to care for us. And when we see a God who gives completely of himself for us, a God who in his love cares and gives, means we can confidently give too. Because even though giving may not make a lick of sense to my sinful nature, I'm confident that the God I'm giving to is the God who can take care of and will continue to take care of every last one of my needs. A God who's given me promises that he'll continue to provide for me. A God who's taken care of me spiritually and has promised to take care of me physically so that eternally I'll have all. And it begins to change my priorities it changes the motivation behind why I give so that you and I, as children of God, as we walk forward in life, can confidently return blessing upon blessing upon God, not worried that at the end of the day we're going to have less for me to, to, to take care of the other things God has given to me, 
but can give generously because I have a God who, who has given to me of himself, forgiveness, he gives me eternal life, and in all of that he promises that he'll continue to provide and take care of me. Giving to God doesn't make a bit of sense. Then again, neither does all the giving God has given to me. Amen. And the peace of God, which goes beyond our, our understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus.
Our Savior Lutheran Church is located on the south side of Birmingham off Highway 280. We are on Dunnett Valley Road, about three quarters of a mile east of Treetop Family Adventure and Sports Blast. Our Sunday services begin at 1015 with Sunday School and Bible Class at 9 o'clock. We welcome visitors and hope to see you soon. For more information, please visit our website at OurSaviorBirmingham.com. Click on Sermons at the top of the page for a copy of today's service folder. You can also find us online on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.